0: ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geraci, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF trends and ETF database or any of its affiliates. ETF trends and ETF database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF trends and ETF database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. This podcast is supported by iShares. The shift to a low carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShare's sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risk fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics prepared by BlackRock Investments LLC.
1: And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. Happy
2: New Year, everyone. So great to be back here for what will be my 11th year of doing this podcast. 11 years. I honestly can't believe it, but really appreciate you listening. And I have a fantastic show to kick off 2022. Joining me will be Laura Krigger, Managing Editor of ETF Trends. We're going to look at some of the more interesting ETF launches expected this year. Uh, If you look at the current pipeline, it's already pretty full. A bunch of filings in the hopper with the SEC. And I think Laura and I both expect to see another bumper crop of new ETFs in 2022 after a record number of launches in 2021. So we'll discuss some of those prospective ETFs and then also just have a conversation around some of the bigger overall trends we're expecting to see out of new ETFs this year. I'll then be joined by Med Faber, co-founder and CIO of Cambria Investment Management. Of course, Cambria has a really nice ETF lineup, over a billion dollars in assets, some very unique products. And Meb himself is a tremendous financial market resource, which is what we'll be focusing on this week. The financial markets in 2022. In particular, I want to discuss international stocks, which I think we all know the narrative here, right? International stocks continue underperforming U.S. markets. Yet, I think we all keep hearing the same thing, that international stocks are undervalued. Uh, It's only a matter of time before... Things shift and international stocks start outperforming. But, man, it's been tough for diversified investors, right? Investors who have done exactly what they're supposed to do, diversify their portfolios internationally, uh, they've underperformed. Every year goes by and international stocks don't deliver. So Meb and I are going to talk about that. And then depending on time, I also want to get his thoughts on the uh, Fed and the bond markets as well. And then to close this week, making his ETF prime debut – I'll be joined by James Safert, ETF analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. He's going to preview the year in ETFs for us. And if you follow James, you already know he covers the crypto ETF space in particular as closely as anyone. So we'll uh, certainly discuss that. And then we'll see what else is on James's ETF radar this year. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate NateGeraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's kick off the year with ETF Trends' Laura Krigger.
1: Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights.
3: There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected.
2: Laura, thanks for joining me. Happy New Year.
3: Happy New Year, Nate.
2: Are you ready for a, uh, another exciting year on ETF Prime?
3: <laughs> I am super stoked. Thanks for having me. And, and uh, it's, it'll be a wild ride for sure.
2: It will. So look, 2021 was a record year for ETF launches. Uh, close to 500 new products. I, I think 480 to be precise. We obviously had the first Bitcoin Futures ETF the first mutual fund ETF conversions, uh, really a bunch of new ETF issuers entering the space. I, I think it was a banner year for ETFs. So before we get to some of the ETF filings out there for 2022, I, I'm just curious, any quick comments or uh, thoughts to wrap up last year in, in the uptick in launches and some of the factors driving this? I, I've got to tell you, I, I have to laugh just because if you remember back a few years ago, people were talking about the ETF space being oversaturated. And now here we are with record launches. It's pretty remarkable.
3: It's true. It's absolutely true. Now, I I think it all kind of stems back to the ETF rule, which passed in 2019. And I remember coming on the show here to talk about it. Uh, you know, it seemed like you know, a, a huge piece of legislation at the time. And, and now I think we're starting to finally see the seeds that were sown then uh, start to sprout, right? So, uh, you know, back in 2019, they the just a, a brief refresher. The ETF rule eliminated the exemptive relief requirement, lowering the paperwork cost, the time sink, and the cost hurdles towards launching an ETF. Uh, can make leveling the playing field, so to speak, for uh, newer entrants and for older entrants. And in addition, it also, uh, you know, in addition to making it cheaper. It also allowed newer issuers to have access to what are called custom baskets, which are a bit of a quirk of structure that has to do with how new ETF shares are made and taken off the market and so on. So up to the point of the ETF rule, most issuers had to create and redeem new shares using a pro rata slice of their existing portfolio. Only a few legacy issuers, uh, you know, BlackRock and State Street and so on, had that wiggle room in there. Um, the ETF rule made it so that everybody has that wiggle room to use custom baskets. And that made it infinitely easier for active managers to use the ETF structure, which is why I'm bringing this up, because we saw in 2021 a flood of active entrants to the market. We saw just huge numbers of not only you know large uh, existing legacy mutual fund uh, companies come to market, but... Smaller active shops who were packaging their strategies, their active management strategies into an ETF form for the first time. And it all comes back to the ETF rule, uh, you know, making it easier for active shops to enter the ETF market and to um, package their thoughts, their IP into a vehicle that is more tax friendly, uh, lower cost and more flexible for the end investor. I think everybody wins.
2: In terms of new issuers coming into the market, I saw a great stat last week from uh, ETF.com's Dan uh, Mika, who he said this was as of December 8th, 41 issuers had filed for their first ETF in 2021 which amounts to just under a quarter of all ETF issuers on the market since SPY launched back in 1993. I thought that was just an unbelievable stat. I think you're absolutely right regarding the uh, the 2019 ETF rule being a, a pivot point here. I'll just add that I also think seeing white-label Providers such as Alpha Architect and uh, the, the the team over at Taroso and, and title, yeah. you know, they've really helped bring costs down to entering the ETF space as well. I think they're streamlining that entire process and they're really making it turnkey for somebody who has a great ETF idea and they want to they want to package that up. Um, they've made that just extremely easy to bring products to market. The other thing I'll add here, and then I, I do want to get to the uh, the 2022 filings, and, and you and I have talked a lot about this uh, really since March of 2020, but I do think the way the ETF structure held up during that COVID crash. I think that gave both investors and I think asset managers just a lot more confidence in the ETF structure. I think that really killed some myths that were out there that you know ETFs would bring down the markets or whatever. <laughs> so I, I do think that helped as well.
3: Well, just wait until the next market crash, and then that myth will be back. Because as long as I've been covering ETFs, people have been uh, claiming that ETFs were going to break the market in some new and novel way. And it's been decades at this point, and it hasn't happened yet.
2: So. I think I just saw another article in the FT uh, yesterday <laughs> regarding that. <laughs> so, so, look, let's uh, let's move on and talk this year. Uh, I had a fun holiday week last week. I perused the SEC filings out there for new <laughs> ETFs. Fun stuff, So, though no, I did have a little uh, eggnog, uh, so, so not all bad. But I flagged several that I want to get your quick take on. And I want to start with a theme that's found quite a bit of success recently, which is the uh, the Metaverse and Metaverse ETFs. So the Roundhill Metaverse ETF ticker, Meta, great ticker, that was first to market last summer, already nearing a billion dollars in assets. And then just last month, we saw filings from both First Trust and ProShares uh, for, for Metaverse ETFs, of course, two top 10 ETF issuers. There's also another filing from subversive capital for a Metaverse ETF. Its ticker symbol will be PUNK. Uh, And then some people may not be aware there's actually another Metaverse ETF already on the market, the Fount Metaverse ETF. But my question to you is, does this seem like it's going to be the next big thematic category, maybe similar to what we've seen with the the, the rash of blockchain ETFs coming to market?
3: That's a really good question. And I think... My, my hot take on it is that it's less a new category and more an evolution of the same trend that we saw inspiring the first round of blockchain ETFs and then Bitcoin ETFs and so on. So this is like um, you know version 3.0 of that trend. There's an acknowledgement that digital assets and digital infrastructure is, The way of the future, and that the world is kind of spiraling towards a ready player one style internet as real life future. And investors want to be part of that. They want to capitalize on that. Now, if you ask me, though, I think perhaps the metaverse might be a little thin on the ground right now when it comes to investability. It's extremely early days in this space. And while I think that the Roundhill guys have done really quite an amazing job of finding uh, the possibilities in such a thin marketplace. But even their fund, which is uh, you mentioned uh, ticker M-E-T-A. I I mean, gosh, they must have had a crystal ball on that one <laughs> before, because they snapped up that ticker a few months before Facebook changed its name to Meta. Um, you know, even that fund has non-pure plays among its top holdings, like Facebook and and Microsoft and Apple, and you know the same big tech stops you find in any one of any other million uh, other tech-related funds, right? So. I don't really know that the industry has the bandwidth to support more than one of these funds or maybe one or two. Uh, Maybe in a few years, the picture is going to look different. Uh, But for now, I think you're going to see a lot of crossover and holdings among these funds and uh, a lot of non-Pure Play fans. Uh, pure play names in the
2: portfolios. I I think that's a good take. I mean, I have said the same regarding the blockchain ETF space. If you just look at the number of ETFs out there and even filings in the hopper there, there are just so many products. And it's such a, it's so early. It's a small market. I don't know that the universe is big enough, but I I think you're right in that the metaverse, this is sort of an evolution of that. I think I actually saw, maybe it was last night or even this morning on Twitter, Eric Balchunas talking about a Web3 ETF, which would be the, (laughs) uh, you you know, sort of the evolution of these. So no, I I just think this is going to be an interesting space to watch. And again, Meta, that did have uh, a nice debut last year, launched in the summer and already up to to nearly a billion dollars in assets. Um, All right. Another category with an uptick in filings is uh, what I'll lump together as carbon. And once again, we had another nice success story last year with a CraneShares Global Carbon Strategy ETF, ticker KRBN. That took in over a billion dollars. Uh, but you look now. There's a filing from pro shares for a carbon offsets climate ETF. There are more filings from crane shares. I saw a new ETF was was filed for last week. The carbon ETF ticker KRB, K- yeah KRB from the uh, carbon mm-hmm. fund advisors. There are also a bunch of uh, carbon transition related ETFs. W- what do you think about the prospects for this space? Like, is this a category where, where you think there's wide enough appeal?
3: Well, before I answer your question, I, I want to step back to something you said about the carbon transition ETFs. These tend to be a little different than carbon ETFs uh, like the CraneShares products and so on um, because they tend to, uh, carbon readiness tends to focus on equities, right? So so companies that are preparing for a low carbon future versus uh, the CraneShares KRBM product, which focuses on carbon allowances and that uh, basically a futures market. So, and, and that's why I think there might be a little bit more room the, for creative interpretation in portfolios for carbon uh, for two reasons, really. Uh, one, carbon allowances, carbon credits, and, and all of that carbon trading uh, marketplace, it's, it's a more mature marketplace. You've got carbon credits from California and the European Union ones, and there's a regional USS, uh, U.S. one, and there's a China one, and it's all over the world now. And, and, and secondly, you can mix and match these futures contracts by their expiration dates, how you're weighting them in a portfolio, and so on. You do all the sort of uh, things that you do with a, a, any other futures-based investment in terms of portfolio construction and management. Um, you know, the question of whether or not the space is big enough for more than one product, I, I mean, I, I do think that the use case has been proven here. KRBN is an enormously successful fund. Uh, you know, you look at the flows into its sister funds, uh, KEUA, that's the European Union one, and KCCA, which is the California one. Those are starting to gain in assets too. And I think it's because the idea of carbon allowances kind of makes sense to advisors. It's not as abstract as, say, investing in carbon transition or carbon readiness, right? You, This is a concrete way to uh, a car- a carbon allowance it, you know it translates into a concrete tangible thing a permission to emit one metric ton of carbon right so it's 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 making it making the abstract concrete and it's be doing it so in a very ingenious way by putting the futures market and the investment markets to work to to make an impact and that's something that I know you and I have talked about over the years about Uh, the wishy-washiness of impact investing and, uh, you know, are you really making a difference when you invest in, uh, you know, a best of the uh, best in class or, you know, excluding the worst sort of ESG ranking system uh, style ETF. Well, you don't have to worry about that here. You are making a difference, right? This is a very clear way that your um, investment is making an impact um, through the investment markets.
2: Well, to your point, I actually visited with Crane Shares Luke Oliver, it was maybe about a month and a half ago, two months ago, on the podcast. And I like the way that he presented this. He basically said, look, um, you hold carbon as a hedge against other ETF risks in your portfolio. So if you just own traditional exposure to companies who maybe do have some environmental concerns, he viewed this as a way to to hedge those risks. And I thought that was a good way to position it uh, versus what you. I know you and I have talked about many times, just the efficacy of sort of this traditional uh, exclusionary or inclusionary ESG approach, which I think, as you know, I'm skeptical uh, as to how much that uh, moves the needle. By the way, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that there's another ETF filing out there. You're going to laugh. The One River Carbon Neutral Bitcoin ETF filing, yeah, right, which will <laughs> hold Bitcoin but then use these... Uh, tokenized carbon credits to try and offer carbon-neutral exposure to Bitcoin. I, I guess on the topic of crypto ETFs, I don't want to spend too much time here. as uh, I'll be covering this later with Bloomberg's James Safert, but we did get the first Bitcoin futures ETF last year. Still no spot Bitcoin ETF. Uh, there are several, uh, or at least there were several other uh, Ether futures ETF filings. I, th- I think all of those have been pulled. But any mm-hmm. quick thoughts on what we might see out of uh, crypto ETFs this year?
3: Well, a spot a spot ETF isn't going to happen. I'm sorry, it's just not going to happen anytime soon. Ether futures probably not going to happen either, and the reason for that is the the SEC has made it clear that Bitcoin is kind of the only crypto currency that they're interested in. Uh, Ether has sort of a dual or multifaceted nature as both a currency, but also you know smart contract uh, structure. So it's it's more than just your average uh, bear when it comes to cryptocurrency. And I think maybe Gensler and company don't really want to wade into that. Um, There was one interesting filing, which was the VanEck. There was actually a VanEck filing for a gold and Bitcoin strategy ETF that would hold both Bitcoin futures and gold futures. And I think, you know, in terms of approval, this is you know probably going to be approved because gold futures ETFs are approved and Bitcoin futures ETFs are approved. So why wouldn't this one also be approved? Um, but I think it's interesting because it's pairing gold and Bitcoin together. And those two are sometimes, and I think mistakenly, um, you know, said that that Bitcoin is going to replace gold or Bitcoin is the new gold or that people hold Bitcoin for the same reasons that they hold gold. And I don't think that's true uh, always. Uh, you know, they don't really serve the same functions in a portfolio. So, um, But I think it's interesting that they would pair those two together. Uh, and and get two very different exposures um, you know, within the same same fund. So I, I, I would be interested to keep my eye on that one, if and when it launches, to see what happens with folks.
2: Yeah, I actually flagged that filing as well. To me, I, I think it's an interesting approach. I think the challenge is going to be from a marketing perspective because gold bugs and, and sort of the Bitcoin maxis tend to be uh, they tend to go at each other's throats. And so who are you marketing to here, right? Are you going to market to the gold crowd? Are you going to market to the Bitcoin crowd? Uh, you know, for better or worse, again, those two uh, tend to go at each other to what you were saying in that, you know, Bitcoin's a digital gold. It's gold 2.0. It's going to replace gold. So I think I think the marketing side of the equation will be the challenge there for uh, for VanEck. But I agree that that'll be approved. Uh, and I'll just say, I also agree with you that I don't think we'll see a spot Bitcoin ETF in 2022. However, I do think that we'll see uh, an Ether Futures ETF. I'm going to talk about this later in the podcast, but I'm more optimistic there just because there are CME traded Ether Futures. And I, I just think for consistency, the SEC is going to have a, a bit of a more difficult time not approving that after approving the uh, the CME traded Bitcoin Futures ETFs. Mm. Uh, all right, uh, we have time for a couple more filings that stood out to me, and I, I know you and I could talk all day about this stuff. But I'm going to go with <laughs> I'm going to go with a Capital Group finally getting involved in ETFs, American funds. So they're coming to market, I believe, this quarter. Uh, just briefly, what sort of expectations do you have for for these ETFs?
3: This is a really interesting question. I, I, I'm kind of just a, a big question mark at this point because you know, on the one hand, they are a huge player in the mutual fund space. I think they could probably have a lot of uh, BYOA assets to deploy and BYOA by that, I mean, bring your own assets. So, you know, they take their client assets and put it into their own funds. It kind of what with uh, JP Morgan did with the beta builders and Dimension did with its conversions and so on and so forth. So, But, you know, you look at, um, you know, some of the other mutual fund issuers who have come to the to the ETF table, and there's been mixed success, right? Some of them have found, uh, you know, right out of the gate, success with Dimensional, American Century starting to get some some traction too, and then some other folks are, are having a little bit more trouble uh, trouble amassing assets, and you can argue that it might be because they don't how uh, understand how to market ETFs, or because maybe they're using. The semi-transparent structure and investors don't really trust that yet, or or maybe they they don't get ETF distribution or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of explanations, and I don't know what is the right one, or if any of them are the right one, or if there is only one right one. Uh, but the 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 fact is that not men or um not all mutual fund issuers with an incredibly strong mutual fund brand have found success in the ETF space. So. There may be a lot of pent up demand among existing American funds users for an ETF version of those funds. Outside that, I have genuinely no idea. And I think only time is going to tell.
2: I think the challenge here is where exactly these products fit. And look, I I think American funds. Yeah, you know, they, I'm sure they do a great job at what they do. But if you look at the trends, obviously the trend has been towards very cheap core exposure, the vanguards and the iShares of the world, and then on the other end, uh, the, the, the the you know the, the hot sauce in a portfolio. I know Eric Balchunas at Bloomberg and James Safer they <laughs> like to talk about that with you know uh, issuers like Ark Invest, and these seem to sit in the in, in no man's land a little bit. And last I saw, the fees on these ETFs they weren't even cheaper than the cheapest uh, mutual fund share class, which I thought was a bit surprising. So it's just where where are these going to fit? Is there enough uh, excitement, enough juice around these products to get investors interested? And are they differentiated enough? Or are people yeah, just going to think- con- yeah, go ahead.
3: The, the point you made about fees is just so crucial. You know, we think we've sort of um, gotten tired of hearing about the fee war and how, you know, everybody's lowering their fees and so on and so forth. But uh, you know, it's still so true that if you're above a certain threshold of expense ratio, whether that's 20 basis points or 25 basis points, it seems to be lowering every year. But if you're above that threshold, you are really going to struggle to get investors to care about your fund. It just is the way that it is, uh, unless you were offering that hot sauce, right, to your por- to a portfolio, unless you were really coming out of the gate strong with a new and differentiated thematic, usually thematic, uh, take on the markets. Um, it's it's pretty much core, low cost, all the way.
2: 100% agree. Um, all right, about a minute left. The last batch of filings I want to get your take on, uh, and I'll just lump these together. It's all of these filings from smaller uh, niche managers, and I'll give you two good examples. So I, I, I love these. Poppy's Money ETF. And then there's this uh, return on character ETF. And perhaps this goes back to, to how we started the conversation, but it does seem like there are a lot more smaller asset managers getting involved in, in ETFs now. Um, I, I guess, do you think that does just go back to what we were talking about earlier, that these barriers to entry have come, come down, it's much easier to launch products, and so we're going to see more of these, these niche managers getting involved?
3: Yeah. And I hope we continue to do so. Right. So one of the things I've always loved about this uh, particular corner of the investment markets is that, uh, you know, the little guy can can thrive. You're, the little guy can strike out with a great idea. And, um, you know, there's or at least there's the myth. Right. Or there has been in the past the myth of the little guy uh, striking out and somehow landing uh, with a you know hundred million or even a billion dollar fund. And, um, you know, it, it's in recent years become more and more difficult for smaller issuers to to strike gold or strike oil or however you want to uh, go with the metaphor there. But, um, you know, I think the ETF rule uh, has leveled the playing field quite a bit so that some of these smaller issuers can have a more even chance. Uh, you know, f- uh, white label issuers like Alpha Architect, I think i both of those funds you mentioned are on the Alpha Architect label. And I, uh, you know, the, the, the operational reason for using a white label issuer in the land of the ETF role might be, you know, there's there's really no, you don't have to go with them for, to get their exemptive relief anymore or anything. But having somebody on your side who understands ETF markets, understands ETF distribution, who can get your idea out there. Uh, to the right people, uh, you know, to the right investors, that that's phenomenal. I think there's going to be a role for white label issuers like Alpha Architect and Taroso and others in the future, um, helping specifically those little guys and gals uh, getting their ideas out there. Um, I just I think it's a really exciting time. This is so cool. I I haven't been this energized about the ETF industry in a long time. We live in exciting times.
2: I absolutely love it. I love seeing the smaller issuers uh, getting more involved here. I love the entrepreneurial spirit of the ETF industry. We always talk about how ETFs are the Silicon Valley of asset management. Yeah. And we're seeing that more and more. Now, I will say, you know, look, how do these some of these ETFs find success? We always talk about how the ETF is a terror dome. It, it is tough to compete. But I love that because the barriers to entry to the space have come down and costs have come down. Uh, You know, these smaller issuers aren't afraid to come and compete here. And that's how you get innovation in the space. That's how you get unique strategies on the market. And I think we saw, if we look at flows last year, I think something like 250 billion or 300 billion went to issuers outside of the big three. That's a big number. And that shows that while the, you know, the overall ETF industry pie is growing, that, that portion for these niche, Managers is also growing, and there's a lot of opportunity there, and I think we'll continue seeing that moving forward. But Laura, this will be another fun year in ETFs. Certainly, no shortage of stuff for us to uh, to, to chat about. But thank <laughs> you for joining me, and again, happy new year!
3: Happy new year, and thanks again for having me.
2: That was Laura Krigger, managing editor of ETF Trends.
0: Miami Beach is calling your name to the biggest ETF industry event of the year: Exchange. Exchange is engineered to deliver high value by providing a space to learn, interact, and network with the most influential thought leaders in the industry. Built with financial advisors, not just for them. Go to exchangeetf.com to register and enter Prime for 50% off your registration. Again, that's exchangeetf.com and apply the discount code Prime for 50% off. See you in February.
2: I'm now joined by Meb Faber, CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Cambria Investment Management, who currently offers 12 ETFs, nearly $1.2 billion in assets. Of course, Meb hosts his own podcast, The Meb Faber Show. Highly recommend checking that out. He's written white papers, books. He does it all. And he's now on the line with me from El Segundo, California. Meb, Happy New Year. Welcome back to the podcast.
4: Happy New Year, my
2: friend. So look, I have decided I'm cutting right to the here. I'm going to put you right on the spot. Will this finally be the year international stocks turn the corner? Or is this going to be another S&P 500 show with, with FANG stocks and Tesla and the other uh, U.S. mega caps continuing to uh, dominate? What say you?
4: Well, let me tell you, it may look calm on the surface and it may feel calm. The S&P, another monster year in 20. 20- 21 um, but there's there seems to be a lot of churn underneath the surface and let me explain we're starting 2022 at one of the highest valuations ever so in the US the market cap weighted S&P if you look at um, the 10 year P ratio it's sitting at 40 that's only happened twice in history 1999 and 2000 Uh, older investors will remember those years quite uh, burned into their memory and we talked on Twitter and we looked globally we said um, what happens historically when you have those high valuations and historically speaking uh, and most people think this has only happened in one or two countries but it's happened in dozens the historical future returns for the next decade real returns are zero on average now People always say, well, it could be different with the U.S., and I say, well, you know, there's been about 50 times this has happened in history. About half of those are Japan, if I recall. You know how many of those had even average returns, meaning 6% average real returns for the next decade, and the answer is zero. So the starting point for the U.S. is poor. Everyone knows that, like you alluded to, and everyone's known that for the last couple years. Here's the difference. In 2020... Uh, the Star Wars fans will say there's been a, there was a disturbance in the force and you can link it to either uh, the pandemic bottom, interest rates bottom or the election. But it's it happened somewhere in that period. Or if you go back 120 years, 2020 was the worst year ever. Excuse me. Um, if you go back 120 years and you look at value, cheap versus expensive stocks within the U.S. market, the worst year ever was 1999. That was followed by the best year ever in 2000 after the bubble popped. That was until 2020. 2020 was worse than 1999 for value stocks. However, we then, sh- we then saw this disturbance in the forest where value stocks crushed it last year. You know, our shareholder yield sweep, um, the US fund was up almost 50% last year. Now, the difference is the really expensive stuff hasn't imploded yet. It started to. A lot of the really expensive growth names have come off. But if we remember back to the late 90s, that's a multi-year process. And so the market cap weighted hasn't rolled over yet. When that does, I think that's when you'll see eventually see the carnage. Now, the challenge is um, we did a, a, a tweet this morning quoting old F. Scott Fitzgerald and said, you know, if you know me long enough, I'm a trend and value guy. And going back long enough, he's like, you know, the test of a first-rate intelligence is can you hold two opposing views in your head and essentially not go insane. And so the trend is up, and valuations are outrageously high. Um, and that feels like conflict, but it's not. Man, that was a long-winded answer to your question of what's going to happen with foreign. Well, foreign, the same thing happened last year. Value stocks did great in foreign developed. They beat the market cap index. Emerging market value did great. It beat the index as well. A lot of that had to do with China. The bigger question is, when do the foreign indices, which are much cheaper than the U.S., start to outperform the U.S., which historically has been a coin flip? Your guess is as good as mine, but I think 2022, they've got a pretty good chance.
2: All right, so a ton to unpack there. And I guess let me first say, Look, I think we both agree valuations are poor short-term market timing tools, right? But over the longer term, I I think it obviously makes sense to pay attention to valuations. And you you just referenced the valuations in the U.S. currently. The one thing I'm curious about, though, is we we all know the narrative of the Fed supporting financial markets, right? They've kept rates pinned down. They forced investors to take risk, uh, pumped a bunch of liquidity into the system. And so even if valuations are on the higher end, Aren't investors betting against the Fed if they pay attention to those valuations right now and, say, lighten up on U.S. stocks? I mean, that hasn't been a great bet over the past several years. So h- h- how do you how do you handle that? Or does it go back to what you're saying? You stay with a trend until it doesn't work anymore. I
4: just there's think it's three, tough for advisors. There's three things in this for the advisors listening and, and what you can do. Um, the first is, historically speaking, and you can look on my Twitter for this, listeners. We posted a chart of it. Um, we say the next decade should have zero real returns. Most of the carnage actually happened in the first three to five years. Um, and you can look at sort of the kink in the chart. So historically speaking, when you're at a P ratio above 40, which is bubble territory, uh, historically the carnage comes soon. It may not be next month, it may, but it, it's very likely in the next couple of years. Um, so be aware. Second is um, – Certainly, you could use trend as a timing indicator. You know, my, most of our early work and a lot of our foundational work uh, at our firm on allocation strategies uh, involves trend. And our flagship Trinity portfolios are half trend. So uh, a lot of the trend currently is showing a huge overweight to real assets. Uh, if you look at our, our global momentum ETF, it's stock full of commodities and real estate and, and equities, too. No bonds yet. Um, But I do want to touch on one thing, which I think uh, is a misconception. Now, I'm pretty anti-consensus here. We did an old blog post called um, stocks are allowed to be expensive since bond yields are low, dot, 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 right? And what we went through is we kind of went through this exercise of looking at historically, you know, do stocks perform well when bond yields are low? And the answer to that is yes. But that has historically been entirely because when bond yields were low historically stock valuations were also low and so if you look at all the other sort of coincident economic indicators of why bond yields were low it's usually because the economy was doing poor trailing stock returns were terrible you had high inflation just everything was yuck right so it set the stage for a bull market that's not what we have now right and so if you look at historically speaking Um, the setup is not the same, right? The the setup was entirely because you were buying stocks at a P.E. ratio of 12, not 40. So I think a lot of people are going to have this false sense of security. As interest rates are cranking up right now uh, in the U.S. uh, with inflation, I mean, who knows what it is, but certainly 4, 5, 6 percent. Historically, P.E. ratios fall off a cliff above 4 or 5 percent. Right, they start to slide at, at three, four, and then above that, uh, we're looking at low teens. Certainly not forty. So, what's an advisor to do? Certainly, uh, move away from the U.S. If you're in the U.S., move away from market cap. Whatever you do, move away from market cap weighted in the U.S. Uh, you can certainly move to foreign. You have dividend yields of four, five percent in a lot of these foreign value indices in the U.S. where are the second lowest dividend yield ever outside the late 90s. Uh, and then, of course, you can think about um, tactical moves like tail risk and other ideas as well. But um, there's a lot of things people can do. The worst thing you can do is hang out in good old uh, market cap weighted sixty forty.
2: Well, and I guess on that note, you, you know, look, you talk to a lot of financial advisors. And, and I'm curious, for financial advisors who offer globally diversified portfolios, the bottom line is they, they've underperformed in the eyes of their clients, right? Clients turn on the news. They see the S&P 500 at record highs. They then look at their advisor's portfolio. It doesn't look so good. Now, obviously, you and I know it's the advisor's job to educate clients, right, on the potential merits of diversifying internationally. But it's tough. Uh, that, that that underperformance is difficult to deal with. I, what, what I'm curious about is do you have any sense as to whether advisors have sort of capitulated here and have actually moved to overweight U.S. stocks just because they can't take the pain anymore versus what you're suggesting in in actually diversifying internationally right now?
4: Most most advisors I know are always overweight U.S. stocks, and and good for them this past 10 years because U.S. stocks have have creamed everything else. Pat yourself on the back. Um, I'm highly confident that's not going to be the way the world looks the next decade. And, And let me give you some perspective. We did a post called The Case for Global Investing a couple years ago on the blog, and um, there's stat after stat after stat of why you should not just be invested in one country, even a country as exceptional as the U.S. I mean, the market cap weighted in the U.S., you're already putting 60% in one country, which to me is crazy, because uh, if you know history, (laughs) the examples of countries that have outperformed for many periods, Uh, You know, Japan is one of my favorites. And I'm not talking about the 80s. I'm actually talking about the early part of the 20th century. Japan, one of the best-performing stock markets in the world from 1900 to the 1930s, and then essentially went to zero. And there's a long list of countries that have lost 80 to 100 percent. And by the way, the U.S. is in that bucket. The U.S. lost 80 percent plus in the Great Depression. But let me give you a stat. You know, in the 2010s, uh, the U.S. creamed everything else. That was a long period of outperformance. Um, again, it's a coin flip in any given year. Uh, and and you, so everyone is extrapolating that into the indefinite future. If you look at uh, when it also outperformed the '90s, you know when, when I was certainly uh, graduating university, the U.S. creamed everything else, you know how you have to go far back before that uh, for the U.S. outperforming the GDP weight or equal weight of the world, 1910. All right. So 80 years prior to that, you know, you went without U.S. outperforming a basic equal weight of the world. So it's an exception rather than the rule. Um, and particularly right now, I mean, not diversifying globally, 75 percent of the best performing stocks each year are outside the U.S. And you and I kind of went back and forth on this on, on email a little bit. I think a great example when people talk about international investing is they feel diversified by investing in the U.S. because the U.S. has uh, exposure to foreign revenues. I hear this quote a lot. They say, no, 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 Meb. The U.S. gets 40% of their revenue from abroad, therefore I'm diversified. To which I respond, the U.S. has the lowest percentage of foreign revenues of any country in the world. And if you're a global investor and borders are becoming increasingly meaningless, which they are, there's companies that are domiciled in the U.S. that have zero U.S. revenue uh, et cetera, et cetera, then you should be even less inclined to be focused on arbitrary geographic borders and invest everywhere. And, um, the, the reality is there's about 10 times as many stocks yielding 3% dividends outside the U S than inside the U S the world is your oyster, a lot of opportunity elsewhere. Um, you know, and, and that certainly I think will be the story over, over the next decade.
2: Meb, we only have a couple minutes left here. And I I know you and I, we could spend two hours talking about this topic. But you you just hit on one of the common rebuttals I hear to investing internationally that the largest U.S. companies do generate a meaningful portion of their revenue and earnings overseas. You address that. The two other common rebuttals I hear to investing internationally are, uh, number one, poor demographics, that if you look at places like Europe and Japan, and even now China, the demographics just don't look great for driving productivity and GDP growth. And then the other common rebuttal I hear, I, I would say, especially for emerging markets, is that they're essentially a play on the U.S. dollar. So if the U.S. dollar is weak, great. But if it's strong, uh, that, that's not a recipe for for emerging market success. Do you have any quick thoughts on on either of those or both of those rebuttals?
4: is tough for me as you know um but uh if you look at demographics the u.s is only 25 percent of world gdp so most of the world i love talking about this with specifically to emerging markets i always try to get people to guess emerging markets as a percentage of world gdp and they always get it wrong because it's more than half um and and if you look at a lot of emerging markets specifically Uh, you know, as far as population growth, as far as, you know, all the long list of uh, things going on, um, it's almost a slam dunk on why you'd want to be investing in emerging markets. Now, emerging markets are only about 13% of the global equity market cap. The average client invests about three. So there's a huge gap. And if you look at valuations, I said the U.S. is at 40. Foreign developed is low 20s. Emerging is uh, mid-teens, which is Cheap already, and then if you look at a value index like our emerging markets uh, shareholder yield fund, um, it's sporting like a four, five, six percent dividend yield, single-digit P ratios, right? Like exceptionally cheap. And then you get into the dollar. Um, we could do a whole podcast on this, but you know, historically, real currency returns are stable. So obviously, they can go up and down twenty percent a year. If you look what's going on in Turkey, uh, they're of course volatile. But over time, they're stable adjusting for inflation. That having been said, you know, there there are moves. The U.S. right now on a purchasing power basis is overvalued versus most currencies. So, yes, I think that will be a tailwind rather than a headwind. But who knows, of course. Um, But if anything, uh, you know, if you look at some of these uh, companies and growth in the emerging markets, You know, I I think that that'll certainly be a story of of the next decade, not necessarily um, the U.S. You got to remember, the U.S. wasn't always the world's largest market cap country. You go back a couple decades, and Japan was 40 percent of the world. And guess what? Uh, Japan's had zero turns for 30 years post that bubble popping. So, um, uh, the the largest the, the largest big dog in the world is not always the best place to be.
2: This is just such a fascinating topic to me. I think you saw the chart that I uh, tweeted out from J.P. Morgan that showed just the broad U.S. Uh, stock benchmark has outperformed broad uh, MSCI International uh, over the past 14 years. <laughs> yeah. Some, you know, 275% outperformance. It's unbelievable. But, Meb, great stuff as always. I, I, I really enjoy hearing your perspective on the markets. Certainly wish you all the success in uh, 2022. Thank you for joining me. All
4: right, bud. Thanks.
2: That was Meb Faber, CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Cambria Investment Management.
0: Looking to invest in the forefront of change impacting our lives? Take a look at biotechnology and semiconductor companies. Why? Because biotechnology companies recently developed effective vaccines for COVID-19, and semiconductor firms created computer chips that are used across today's growing industries. Close to 20 years ago, NASDAQ developed two indexes to help investors track biotechnology and semiconductor companies. Learn more at Invesco.com IBBQ or Invesco.com S-O-X-Q. IBBQ and S-O-X-Q are NASDAQ listed.
1: Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Call 800-983-0903 for a prospectus containing this information. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Investco Distributors Inc.
2: I'm now joined by James Safer, ETF analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. James is an excellent all-around resource on ETFs. I would say nobody covers the crypto ETF landscape as well as James does, uh, who is now on the line with me from New Jersey. James, great finally having you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me.
5: Yes, I'm happy to be here. All right, so First we're... Time call it long-time listener, I guess.
2: No, and it's, it's great finally having you here. And uh, we're going to preview the year in ETFs. I, I think a, a lot of different directions we can head. But I think we have to start with Bitcoin and crypto ETFs, right? A favorite topic for both of us. Obviously, we got the first Bitcoin futures ETFs in 2021. Still no spot Bitcoin ETF, which, by the way, I need to trademark that saying. Uh, but but look, I'll tell you, I'm not optimistic about the chances we see a spot Bitcoin ETF this year. Uh, I just don't feel like uh, SEC Chair Gary Gensler is there. It seems like he wants much more regulation around crypto exchanges and the underlying crypto market. And to me, that just seems like it's going to, to take a while. That's not going to happen overnight. So to to start, do you agree with that? And then what else are you watching for with crypto ETFs this year?
5: So I definitely, I also agree with that. I think I think the the SEC has just repeatedly showed us they're just not ready and they're not having it with the spot Bitcoin ETF. But there are a few things that people aren't talking about. There's a lot of people out there that just kind of see this as the SEC is denying it. It's not going to happen and nothing is changing. But there are a lot of undercurrents that are changing and that I'm looking forward to specifically in the spring of 2022, to kind of dictate where this thing goes. Could we see one at the end of 2022? And I'm, I'm at this point pretty optimistic that I think we'll get one in 23. Um, but again, that's a whole year away. Um, and we can get it. We can dive into why that is.
2: Well, well, no, I'd love to hear more. I mean, what are some of those undercurrents?
5: Yeah, so, I, so the way this whole process works, you've, you've discussed it on your podcast. These, the, the the futures ETFs we have now are, are filed under the 1940 Act, and they don't have to go through this 19B4 process. We don't want to go down too dark into the hole, too deep into the hole about like why that is. But essentially, they didn't have to go through the same process that spot Bitcoin ETFs have to go through, and the division of trading and the markets that the SEC keeps denying them. Um, so Gary Gensler on August 3rd basically told issuers, apply under the 40 Act with Bitcoin futures. And... Wink, wink, we'll see what happens. And that's what happened. We had an approval. And I said, the, from after Van Eck was denied, when I read the denial letter for Van Eck and some of these other issues that have been denied since then at the end of November through just the week before uh, 2022, I didn't think that based on their reasoning for the denial with the mark issues with the potential manipulation, no oversight in the underlying market, I, my thought process was, Even if a Bitcoin futures product went through this 19B4 process, it would get denied by the SEC's decision-making process, the way they view the market. So, But uniquely, we have a couple of ETFs coming up due for that 19B4 decision from the SEC at the beginning of April. So we get 2Cream on April 8th, the decision is due. And then we also have another Valkyrie futures-based ETF that's under the 33 Act due for the 19B4. So what this does is it kind of opens the SEC to... Uh, a, a form of attack. They kind of have to make a decision here. They've been very uh, iffy on their their reasoning, and they haven't defined what a market of human size is. We have this grayscale letter that went to the SEC, um, citing the Administrative Procedures Act, which basically says that it needs to treat like situations alike, and if they don't, that the they can the SEC can be sued for not treating situations that are similar similarly. So what happens here is if they if they deny on April on April 8th as I suspect they would have if this futures ETF filing went through the 19 process before they approved the 1940 act ETF then that opens them up I believe to um, a, a lawsuit um, and I our crypto litigation analyst also thinks there's a chance that the SEC could lose such a such a, um, a lawsuit but obviously that would be to to be determined so then that leaves them with another option which is they have to approve these futures ETFs under the 19 process and what that does, in my mind, is it kind of takes away some of their arguments against the Bitcoin underlying futures market and saying that the futures market is enough to so of size, but then they're going to approve Bitcoin futures ETF. And then you take a step back and you look at the way these futures are, tr- are uh, priced. Is they're based on the spot market. So the SEC says the spark market is, is subject to manipulation. But then the Bitcoin futures are actually priced based off of those underlying spot markets, so five different crypto exchanges, which is exactly how a Bitcoin spot ETF would trade. So essentially what's going to happen here is we're going to have to see how the SEC handles these futures ETFs that are filed in the 1994 process and then see what happens with some of these more filings. If, if Grayscale is denied in, in the beginning of uh, July, that's when their final date is to convert GBTC, um, I could see Grayscale filing an APA lawsuit. Um, To try and go there. And again, that lawsuit could take a year, maybe more before it's tied out. So that could be to 2023. But maybe the SEC decides they don't want to deal with that. I still think the odds of getting an ETF, a spot Bitcoin ETF uh, in 2022 are below 50%. But I think they're not quite as low as many people make them out to be because of all these different reasons.
2: That was a fantastic description, and I want to hone in on two points that you made, and I think these are part of this argument that Grayscale is mounting through that Administrative Procedure Act, the APA uh, violation that you mentioned. And again, that's that, you know, they're they're effectively making the case Bitcoin futures are priced off of exchanges like Coinbase and Gemini, exactly like a spot Bitcoin ETF would be. There's no difference there. And you and I have talked about this, I, I know out on Twitter, that If somebody manipulates the spot bitcoin market that's going to impact the futures market these two markets are intertwined they don't exist in in a vacuum they're not they're not siloed here and so you you can't say that you're okay with the futures market and the pricing there but not be okay with the spot market. And I would say vice versa. And then the other point that you made, which which I completely agree with, is that the SEC has denied spot Bitcoin ETFs by saying that the CME Bitcoin futures market isn't big enough. But of course they approve Bitcoin futures ETFs holding those same futures. I think those are the two... You know, key issues that they're going to have to to grapple with here, and I think you're right that uh, if we get into legal proceedings, it's going to be tough for them to overcome. Now, I always think the SEC's in a position of power here. Anytime you get into litigation or a legal situation, right, I, the, the onus is going to be on Grayscale and the other ETF issuers. But but those are, in my opinion, two pretty compelling uh, arguments.
5: Yeah, I would just say I really I've been saying this from the get go for over a year now. I really think the SEC it's lost the force for the trees here. They're focused on bureaucratic minutia, um, a whole bunch of different things that like if you take a big step back, you're like a spot Bitcoin ETF is better for everyone involved. If people at this point know what Bitcoin is, it's not like some obscure thing that people don't understand. They understand what it is. And I think they're focused on just really small things. And you look at what they've approved. They've approved BIDO and. Don't get me wrong. There are plenty of people out there to say Bito is worthless, but it is a good product. It's a good trading product. It trades tight. Um, there's no commissions. If you're trading crypto directly, you end up paying a lot of commissions to trade that. But Bito is versus the actual spot Bitcoin market is is off by three percent. So it's it's underperformed the spot Bitcoin market by three percent because of those roll costs. We're not even three months in. Um, so I mean, for all those reasons, it ju- it just makes sense that a spot Bitcoin ETF should be approved. In my opinion. And there's a lot of issuers out there. There's a lot of legal firepower being, being put uh, towards the SEC to get this approved. But the SEC has put their foot down pretty, pretty strongly, saying they don't care about all these different reasons. And they're worried about manipulation of the underlying market. They want surveillance agreements. They've actually cited, like, some stablecoin issues they're worried about. So there's all these things that they're, they're worried about. Um, so we'll see, again, how they handle things uh, in the beginning of April. That's what I'm watching for
2: now. Let me ask you this, and then I do want to move on to some other topics. Um, I'm going to be posting my 2022 ETF predictions probably tomorrow, but by Thursday for sure. And I'll I'll spill the beans on one of them now. Uh, One of them is going to be that I think Ethereum futures ETFs will be approved this year. And, you know, it's interesting. We were talking about treating similar situations alike, these APA violations. Uh, my, my logic here is pretty simple. It goes back to, to Gensler and the fact that if he is comfortable with CME-traded Bitcoin futures held in a 1940-act ETF, then I, I don't see any reason why he shouldn't be comfortable with CME-traded Ether futures held in a 40-act wrapper. It just doesn't seem defensible to, to me to approve one and not the other. And from my standpoint, there appears to be plenty of liquidity in Ether futures. Uh, last I checked, about a third of the volume and in open interest uh, of Bitcoin futures, but that seems like plenty to work with. Um, I, I guess briefly here, do you agree with that?
5: So, uh, yeah, I've, I've actually said in my pieces looking forward to 2022 that a big, uh, Ethereum futures ETF is likely to come before a spot Bitcoin ETF based on the SEC comments. But there are a few things that I can push back. So, I agree with you broadly speaking. I think we will get one, but there are a few negatives. So, the first is, um, the, the one positive is that when, when Gensler came out and said a 1940-act futures ETF is what uh, a Bitcoin ETF filer should pursue, Bitcoin open interest in the CME futures market was about $1.3 Ethereum futures po- peaked at that level, but now they're about $700, bi- 700 million, so it's, it's decently off that. Um, the other thing is, obviously, Ethereum futures only started in 2021, I believe February of 2021, so there's a little bit less history. And then the final thing is the FCM issues, the uh, futures commission merchants. There was a huge issue because there was so much demand for the Bitcoin futures as you have Bitto, um and Valkyrie's launch that the other issuers couldn't launch because there wasn't enough uh, balance sheet, essentially, for these futures commission merchants, which kind of act as the middlemen in these futures markets. Um, so if there's more risk, more volatility and things like that, they have to use their balance sheet to offset that and make markets. And I think maybe they're a little bit worried about the market not being big enough they might put a little bit of higher standard on the market being large enough before they launch of Ethereum futures ETF. So those are the counterpoints I would offer. But I also agree, I think we should see an Ethereum futures ETF in 2022.
2: It's going to be fascinating to watch. And hey, you never know, maybe we'll both end up being wrong and there will be a spot Bitcoin ETF. But uh, I, I just love tracking this story. Um, all right, we're running a little bit short on time. I should have known that we get hung up on the crypto topic. I should have allocated like a, a whole hour for us to talk about that. But let's go <laughs> Let's go a rapid fire here. I'm just going to tee up uh, some topics. And just give me your, your, your quick take on these. So uh, first, obviously, 2021 was a banner year for ETFs overall. Uh, Nine hundred plus billion in inflows, record number of launches. Uh, I, I'm curious, looking ahead. I know you're obviously bullish on the future of ETFs, but what, what are you expecting in terms of like continued adoption moving forward? Where, where do you think we are in the the overall life cycle of ETFs?
5: Yeah, so so it's basically, from like 20, 2004 till first quarter of 2019, everything, on the, especially on the equity side. So if we look at things from the equity perspective, if we break it down to active versus passive and mutual funds versus ETFs, because that's the most data we have, basically passive equity was taking in money hand over fist every single quarter without issue. And that's kind of changed in the fourth quarter of 2019. We had this 12-ish month of middling where there was inflows and outflows to the index equity mutual funds. And then all of a sudden, after the downturn, so March 2020, the pandemic, blah, 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 Uh, We saw a change. We've seen outflows pretty much every quarter since then to index equity mutual funds. And we've seen massive, as we've highlighted and you've highlighted, there's been massive inflows into equity ETFs and ETFs in general, um, active equity ETFs as well. Um, So basically, there's been this entire change of regime. So historically, it was uh, active to passive, but we really cited it more as high cost to low cost. Um, that's the way we typically spoke about it. But now we're seeing this actual structural shift from mutual funds to ETFs in our opinion. Now, not all of those index equity mutual fund outflows are solely going to ETFs. Um, some of it is also going to CITs and different things like that. So we can't see that which are a little more opaque market. But it's definitely happening where ETFs are sucking up the, 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 uh, the assets from, from mutual funds. And we're also seeing it in ETF mutual, mutual fund to ETF conversions.
2: James, when you look at the composition of flows into ETFs, um, I'm curious where you think issuers can find success moving forward. And the way I would frame this is I know you and uh, Eric Balchunas like to talk about this cheap versus shiny object phenomenon. I actually talked about this earlier with uh, ETF Trends, Laura Krieger, a little bit, too, right, where – investors are plowing money into the cheapest core building block ETFs, the vanguards, the iShares of the world, and then they're spicing things up around the edges of their portfolios with uh, thematic ETFs and those sorts of things. Do you see anything changing with that moving forward? Obviously, that has been a good recipe for success for the ETF industry overall when you look at flows, but is that the future of ETFs?
5: Yeah, so that's the way that we view it. That's the way that Eric and I and our team kind of looks at this. So here's here's a really cool stat from our 2022 outlook. Um, In 2018, almost 99% of ETF flows went to ETFs charging 20 basis points or less, which is an amazing stat. But for 2021, that's only about 72%. And that's because we're seeing this barbelling. People want these thematic ETFs. They want these high active shared active uh, ETFs like the ARC ETFs. And a lot of people talk about them as being bad investments that are for long-term investments. But they're... I feel like people in the industry are kind of do this like hand wagging or finger wagging about like these are not good products for long term investments. But they kind of miss the bigger picture that a lot of people are doing this core satellite approach where they have their core, most of their investments in the passive large, passive uh, market cap weighted ETFs or mutual funds, wherever it may be. And they don't touch it. But then they they like to do things on the edge with these products that I'm talking about, the things that tend to charge more. They're going to have way more volatility. It's it's a little bit more like gambling. It can be fun for some people, and it helps them stay away from touching that core part of their portfolio. Um, so it, I, I think that like it, investing can be fun for some people, and that's what they're doing. And we're seeing it show up in the flows and the data, as I mentioned. 99% in 2018 with the ETFs charging 22 basis points or less. That number is down to tw- was down to 72% in 2021, which is an amazing stat. And we did not see that coming necessarily. That went down more than we predicted.
2: Just a couple minutes left here on that uh, shiny object front. I know you and the uh, Bloomberg ETF team, you you publish a piece titled 22 ETFs to watch in 2022. Um, I'm just curious, are there a couple of ETFs you can highlight here? Maybe something off the beaten path a little bit?
5: Yeah, so we we tend to, we do this every year. We've done 20 for 2020 and 21 for 21. Now we're doing 22 for 22. I don't know if for when we're going to stop that. (laughs) Um, But so I'll talk about the ones I did. Uh, I did Bito, which is the futures ETF, Bitcoin futures ETF and GBTC. We talked enough about them, so that, that's the crypto side of things. The other one, I did three others that I, I wrote about. And to be clear, these aren't like our predictions on good ETFs. They're just ETFs that we're watching because they're interesting and they might focus on certain trends. So one of them is VOTE, um, which is the engine number one uh, ESG ETF, and they do things through uh, activist investment. And I find this extremely interesting as a way to attack the ESG ETF landscape. They're doing decently well, pulling in a bunch of assets. Um, So we're going to be watching this to see how this does versus the more traditional way that people are attacking the ESG world. The other thing I highlighted were interest rate hedge ETFs, which has been around basically since people have been calling for the Fed to raise rates back in 2011, 2013. And they really haven't taken off with that many assets until this past year. They've significantly grown. So things like IGHG, LQDH, So we'll see how – I'm going to be watching that market to see if they take off and finally have their their time to shine, their time in the sun. And the last one I highlighted was FRDM, um, the Freedom Merging Markets ETF. Um, And this basically – this kind of ties back to the ESG thing I I highlighted earlier. it It basically invests in countries and companies within countries that have higher freedom weighting essentially. And what this ends up being is like a kind of ESG score based on countries, because there's a lot of people that just invest in emerging markets. They have an ESG allocation, and then they put tons of money into an emerging markets product that holds, I don't know, 40% in China. And China is has historically and is currently doing a lot of things that most ESG proponents say are terrible for, for ESG purposes. So, from those perspectives, we're watching these types of ETFs and seeing if they can gain a niche or a hold um, in investor
4: portfolios.
2: No, I think all interesting ETFs to track the uh, interest rate hedged ETF category, I think, will be particularly interesting. We saw the flows into inflation. Uh, you know, type hedge ETFs last year, Um, I think this interest rate hedge ETF category could be uh, one one that we see a lot of inflows into. But uh, James, great stuff this week. So glad to finally have you on the uh, podcast. I think it's going to be another fun year in the industry. And I really appreciate everything you and the entire Bloomberg team do covering ETFs. So uh, keep up that excellent work. And thank you for joining me.
5: Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: That was James Seifert, ETF analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Dracy, or you can send comments through etfprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Wisdom Tree's Jeremy Schwartz. So he's gonna explain the RWM Wisdom Tree Crypto Index and also discuss the role of digital assets in a portfolio. And then Wade Gunther, managing partner at Wilshire Phoenix, will offer a little perspective on the status of a spot Bitcoin ETF, and also highlight their W Shares Enhanced Gold ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.